good to be here at Epiphany Fellowship with you all this morning. And it's so exciting, you know, uh, I'm from uh, Restoration Church, we're over in Germantown right now, I bring you greetings from there, and we only have one service, so it's really interesting coming to three services, it's kind of like Groundhog Day or something, you know, where you, you know, you're done, I'm used to being done, I go in the office and I'm like, wait, the same music is starting over again, like it's going again, it's really cool. And between services, Muhammad, who's been hanging out with me today, comes over. He's like, hey, you want some lunch before your third service? I said, yeah, cool, yeah, bring up some lunch. So he brought up some lunch, and it's, and it's Chick-fil-A. I said, oh, wait, wait, it's Sunday. How do you? And I'm sitting here wondering, what kind of Christian mafia do you have to be a part of to get Chick-fil-A on a Sunday? So I don't know, I'm going to call Pastor E after his sabbatical and find out what kind of connections he has, because for me, that's usually, you know, we fast from that on Sundays. But God be my witness, I just ate Chick-fil-A up there before sitting down and coming here, so I don't know where it came from, but let's open up with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you so much for bringing us together, for uh, giving us the opportunity to just come together with hearts that are unified to worship you, to learn from you, to grow in you. We ask that everyone under my voice today would walk away from this place looking and acting more and more like Jesus Christ. It's in his name, his name we pray, amen. I want to open up with a poem today, maybe you know it. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day Yet knowing how way leads to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Most of you are probably familiar with that poem. That is The Road Less Traveled by Robert Frost. And you're probably familiar with it because it's considered to be, by some, the most important piece of literature ever written by an American. It appears in graduation speeches. We've seen it on coffee mugs, on Nicorette commercials, Monster.com ads, Mentos commercials. It's appeared in more than 400 books as a title or subtitle, and it has appeared in newscasts over 2,000 times over the last 34 years, which yields to about one and a half times per week. It's a pretty popular piece of poetry in our culture. And the reason why this is such a ubiquitous piece of literature is because the underlying theme of this poem resonates with most of us very deeply. The idea that there are two roads, one choice, and endless possibilities speaks to many of us throughout our lives. Now, on a day-to-day -day basis, you don't think of things in those terms, but I bet more than once, when you've been faced with a very serious life decision, you've thought of it in terms of two paths to take, two roads by which you have to choose. And although I'd like to give him credit, Robert Frost is not the first person to come up with this analogy. In fact, the idea of two roads or two paths is an ancient idea that goes back in wisdom literature in all time and all cultures. And one of the most prominent ways we see this two-road analogy is in the Bible itself more than once. Often we see a wise person talking to a younger person or to an audience and saying, well, here's the path of life and here's the path of death. Here's the path of wisdom, here's the path of foolishness. Here's the path of blessing and here's the path of cursing. And sometimes we actually find God himself using that very same analogy more than once. And one of my favorite uses of that is when God speaks up in Jeremiah chapter 17. So we're going to be looking there today. If you want to turn with your, uh, turn in your Bible with me to Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 8, and it will be on the screen. And one thing I love about Epiphany Fellowship is I get to save my voice a little bit because you all have this habit of reading the text 
together, which I really love. So if you all want to stand up for the reading of God's Word, um, I'm in the Christian Standard Bible, so that will be on the screen if you want to be in the same translation together. I'll start reading, and why don't you all continue together out loud uh, through verse 8. This is what the Lord says. Amen. You can be seated. Before jumping in, I want to give you a little background about the passage you all just read. We have the name Jeremiah at the beginning of this book. Jeremiah was an Old Testament prophet. And if we know anything about the Old Testament during that time, the people of God were the nation of Israel. This small kind of ragamuffin nation that lived in the Middle East over there, the ancient Near East. And they functioned as God's people and they often found themselves displaced. And they often found themselves living in the midst of other empires. And these empires had kings, they had powerful militaries, they had uh, gods that were seen in statues of gold and jewels, and they had a lot of allure in these empires. And what happened time and time again was the people of Israel became attracted to the empires, what the empire had to offer, and they would sell themselves out because they wanted some security. They wanted some riches. They wanted what this God had to offer, this God had to offer, right? And in doing so, they would rebel against God. And Jeremiah's job, as many prophets were called, he was one who was called out as a young man, and God said, listen, I'm going to set you apart, I'm going to call you out, and you're going to be like my mouthpiece. And I want you to speak to Israel on my behalf. I'm going to tell you what I'm saying, what I'm thinking, what I want done, and you're going to go and speak to Israel for me. And Jeremiah, that was his ministry. He was a prophet. And in our day and age, we would not categorize Jeremiah as a very successful prophet because his ministry was met with a lot of resistance, a lot of pain, and a lot of brokenness. And he's known as the weeping prophet for that reason because he would spend his days in the street crying and begging the people to turn back to God, but they wouldn't do it. And consequently, he watched his people whom he loved suffer famine, suffer war, and suffer economic collapse. So at one point around the middle of Jeremiah's ministry, which we find ourselves here in chapter 17, God says, Jeremiah, I want to make something very clear to you, and I want you to make it very clear to the people of Israel. There are two roads you can choose from. There's a road that trusts in me, and there's a road that trusts in mankind. And there are benefits and there are consequences to each of these roads. And I want you to share this road analogy with my people. And that's exactly what we have recorded here for us to look at today. And before I jump in, I want to give you one caveat. Although we're in a prophetic book here, this uh, piece that we're reading is called Wisdom Literature. Wisdom literature is normally what we find in the Proverbs. And someone once told me that you need wisdom to read wisdom literature. You have to understand when you come to wisdom literature, you don't read it in a sense of this specific action guarantees this specific result. This is not a scratch-off ticket. This is not a, a, a math equation. This is general principle. This is rule of thumb that says these types of actions usually result in these types of things. But it is not some type of formula we come to when we read wisdom literature. So remember that when you're reading the Proverbs or any passage like this. So the passage we're looking at today simply describes the choice we have as humans and what those choices look like for us. Simple as that, I got two points and I'm done. And the two points are this, the road that trusts in mankind and the road that trusts in God. Point one, the road that trusts in mankind. Uh, look with me in verse five. This is what the Lord says, cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. 
I want to stop right there because we've met some strong language right off the bat. Cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. To understand what this means, we first have to understand what it means to be cursed. And some of us may come from cultures or backgrounds or know people whose religion or heritage actually dealt with curses. Maybe we've heard of things like that, where some people in certain faith groups summon up a spirit, summon up some type of spell, and they cast a curse upon another person, hoping some type of harm will fall upon them. We're familiar with that. But the interesting thing about this passage is that we actually have God himself saying that the person who trusts in mankind will be cursed. This is God saying that if you trust in mankind, you will be condemned. You will experience harm. You will have a curse come upon you. And Jeremiah, when he heard this, said, yeah, I see that. I see war. I see famine. I see poverty. I see that there are consequences to the way my people have turned from God. So how do these curses work? I want to know when I come to passages like this. What does it mean for God to curse them? Well, one, we do see in the Bible that God does, from time to time, directly and intentionally punish people. Directly and intentionally curse people. That does happen. At the same time, we often see that people bring curses upon themselves, and God doesn't have to do a darn thing about it. That all God has to do sometimes is just step aside and observe, remove a sustaining hand or a hand of blessing, and we, before you know it, start raining curses upon ourselves. So, yeah, bad things happen. Sometimes they might come directly from God. Sometimes, more often probably than not, they come directly from us. But the point is this. There's no way of really ever knowing if a bad situation is coming directly from God. So when you come to something like this and you're wondering about curses, we need to recognize that we do not have the insight, we do not have the wisdom, and we do not have the permission to name and bind every bad thing as a curse from God. We have the habit, we have the inclinations to say, oh my gosh, I'm sick, and it must be because I did this last week. Or my life for 20 years has yielded this type of unfortunate incident in my life now. That's not what we see here. We do not have that kind of insight. We are not told to do that, and that is not how God works. You're not being pranked by God. You're not being tricked by God. We're not uh, assigned some type of puzzle to figure out why these bad things happen. But we know they do happen. Bad things do happen. And here it says, if you trust in mankind, bad things are going to happen. Interesting. So now I want to know what it means to trust in mankind. So make sure I got that out of the way. So let's look at what that means. And before we define what that means, I want to define what that doesn't mean. So when I say don't trust in mankind, or the Bible says don't trust in mankind, first of all, it is not saying don't trust in other human beings. Some of you may like for it to mean that because you've been beat by other people, you've been burned by other people, and it's easy to say, I don't trust in people. That's not what we're talking about here. Hopefully, I pray all of you actually have people in your lives who you trust, who you can ho have hope in, who you are vulnerable with, who you have real faith and dependence on. That is a good thing, and we'll talk more about that later, why that's an absolute necessity in your life. So it's not talking about that. It's also not talking about not having trust in humankind at all. It doesn't mean that we throw away science or technology or medicine, as some have done, where they say, you know, don't, don't give me any medicine, don't give me a blood transfusion, don't give me this because I'm trusting in God, not man. Or, or no, we don't want technology, I'll, you know, I don't need a car, I don't need a phone because I'm trusting in God, not man. That's not what God is saying here. In this context, putting your trust in mankind means putting your ultimate faith, your ultimate hope, your ultimate trust in mankind instead of placing your ultimate trust, your ultimate faith, and your ultimate hope in God. It's an either-or situation. How do I know that? Well, keep reading with me, and it explains itself right here. Verse, the end of verse 5. He makes human flesh his strength, and his heart turns from the Lord. He makes human flesh his strength, and his heart turns from the Lord. The person we're describing here, the person who trusts in mankind, it says, as he trusts in mankind, his heart turns from the Lord, 
It's one motion here. We have this image of a road, remember? You have mankind here, you have God here, and he says, as he turns his heart towards mankind, he turns away from God. He can't do both at the same time. As you turn to trust in one, you subsequently turn away from the other thing. So what we have here is a picture of human beings with no middle ground. We are in a place where we either choose God and choose mankind, and as we choose one, we reject the other. And this is the first part of the passage, and we're looking at the person who trusts in mankind, and here we wonder, well, what does this person look like? Well, God actually describes that person as a plant. Look at uh, verse 6 with me. He will be like a juniper in the arbor. He cannot see when good comes but dwells in parched places, in the wilderness, in the salt land where no one lives. Is anyone here familiar with bonsai trees? Bonsai trees, anyone? All right, second service was doing better than y'all. <laughs> bonsai trees, you might remember them from Karate Kid or other things like that. It's a Japanese art form of miniature trees. You see, you know, sometimes you sell them in mall kiosks, they're miniature trees. Well, I'm going to be very vulnerable with you all. I'm going to make a confession. I know about bonsai trees because in high school I was really into bonsai trees. I was into bonsai trees so much that I started a bonsai club. <laughs> and that bonsai club was called Bonsai Anonymous, South Jersey's premier bonsai club. <laughs> and when you practice the art form of bonsai, what you do is this. It's pretty simple. It just takes a long time. You take a tree. Maybe it's a started plant. Maybe it's a seed. And this is a normal plant, a normal tree, that if planted otherwise, you know, somewhere else in the proper conditions, this would be none other than a regular tree that grows really tall and really big. But what you do in bonsai is you take this little tree and you use pruning and gardening techniques and potting techniques to take this tree and keep it shrunken. Now, this tree may hold the proportions of a fully grown tree, and it may be 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, but it's only so big in a pot and it has little leaves, and it has all these little features, but it looks like an aged old tree. Now, what some, there's something that bonsai enthusiasts really like, and remember, I know this because I come from bonsai culture, and bonsai enthusiasts really like something called natural bonsai, or naturally occurring bonsai. If you can find some of these, it might make your year, again, if you're in bonsai culture. Um, what, and you've all probably seen a naturally occurring bonsai. What that is, is this. Maybe you've uh, seen this in pictures or in, in, outside in the wild. They are trees, again, a regular tree seed, a regular small tree, that's grown in a very difficult piece of land. Maybe you've seen a, a tree on a rock on the edge of a cliff that roots are clinging on and it's hanging over the edge and it looks all rugged. Well, that same tree, if planted somewhere else, it would be a totally normal looking tree. Or maybe you've seen a tree in a desert or on a beach where it's blown over and it's grown sideways. This is what happens to trees that are otherwise planted in difficult regions. They lack proper nutrients. They lack proper sunlight. Maybe there's too much wind that's good for them. Now, they're surviving, but they are shrunken and they are dwarfed versions of the tree that they would be if they had been planted in a healthy, sustainable environment. And here God tells us that this very tree is the fitting image for a person who trusts in mankind instead of God. Those who trust in military power, politicians, bank accounts, education, and human progress to the point where they are no longer trusting in God in any real way are stunted, malnourished, starving versions of the human beings that they were created to be. They are like a dried up shrub in the desert, clinging with its brittle roots to the dry ground, hoping for some rain to come, but it is nowhere near its life source. It is nowhere near the streams of living water that it needs to survive in any healthy or sustainable way. And when we hear something like this, we have to ask ourselves the questions, does this describe you? Does this describe me? How do we interpret a passage like this? How do we know? Am I trusting in mankind or are I trusting in God? I mean, we may know to some degree, but sometimes we have to look at ourselves throughout the day and say, trust is sometimes hard to measure. 
I don't have a gauge on my side that says, you know, I'm at 80 today, or I'm at 50 today, or I'm at 10. Like, sometimes our lives are filled with anxiety and stress and, and advice and all over the place, and we're like, how, you know, am I really trusting God? What does trust feel like? It's something that's not always concrete and easy to judge. So what we do, I'm going to teach you a little something. When you come to a passage like this, that's a little confusing. That makes you think, well, what does it mean to trust God? What does it mean not to trust in God? When you ever come to a passage like this, I want you to remember that you can have a lens, an interpretive lens that you can bring to any passage to help bring light to it for you. Remember, God reveals himself in the Bible, and, and he reveals himself progressively, meaning in Genesis, you learn a little bit about God, and as the Bible unfolds, you learn more and more about God until you finally meet God in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was God in the flesh, and so from him we know, what is God like? What does it mean to have a relationship with God? How can you have a relationship with God? What does God think of me? How am I supposed to act in light of God? All of these things we learn in the person of Jesus Christ. And when you come to a passage like this, and you're wondering, well, do I trust God? God, or do I trust mankind? Am I on the road of blessing or am I on the road of cursing? You can say, hold up, I may not understand everything go that's going on here, but I do know about Jesus. I do know that in Jesus I can have a relationship with God because the curses I'm worried about here were actually placed on his back on the cross, that he absorbed the curse. Not only that, he became a curse on my behalf so that I could receive blessings, so that my life could be a blessing, that I can become a recipient of God's divine blessing. So when you come to a passage like this, we can sit back and rest and say, if I am in Christ today, I don't have to worry about being under God's wrath. I don't have to worry about God departing from me. And even though I fail, even though I mess up, I can be safe, I can be secure, and I can in, uh, trust in a permanent relationship with God. So reading a passage like this, Christian, doesn't have to look like a tightrope religion where you're walking and you're worried about, did I take the wrong path? Am I going to fall into cursing? Am I going to fall into blessing? No, that's not what this is saying here because we know in Jesus that you can be safe and secure in the arms of God. At the same time, that doesn't mean we got to throw a passage like this away. This is still God's word. There's still a lot to be gleaned here. So while you may be safe and secure in a relationship with God and you are not worried about hell, you are not worried about his wrath, you do have to recognize that you may experience the consequences of limiting your trust in God. You may miss out on some blessings by placing too much trust in man. You may become stunted in your growth if you are not close to your life source. And you may not fully become the human you were created to be if you are regularly choosing to trust in mankind instead of God. So Christian, the curse has been bared on your behalf. We are not living under a lightning bolt throwing God. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that trusting in God is unimportant. So that's the negative side of things. That's, that's, the, that's the road that trusts in mankind. Let's get, I gave the bad news first. Let's look at the good news, right? Because now we have the road that trusts in God. Second point, verse 7 through 8. Verse 7 says this. The person who trusts in the Lord, indeed whose trust is the Lord, is blessed. Those who have learned to trust in God. Those whose lives are marked by a deep faith in God's care for them. And those who are slow to put too much stock in man's promises. It says, those people are blessed. Those people are blessed. And we know that sounds good to be blessed, but then we have to ask the question, what does it even mean to be blessed? Because if you're like me, you turned on the TV before, and you've been told that if you just sow a seed, if you just call in this number, if you just order a prayer cloth, if you just get some oil, if you just get some water, if you just make some type of commitment, commitment, you will receive blessing. And more often than not, these blessings often come in the form of material and financial gain. I want to tell you confidently that that is not what blessings necessarily look like, and that is certainly not how blessings are acquired. And those who tell you otherwise are practicing what's known as spiritual abuse. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't still bless people. Of course God blesses people, but we often find ourselves in a predicament when we are praying for God's blessings because, hey, 
Who doesn't want a new car, a new house, a new job? Those are good things to want. Those are necessary things. But we find ourselves in this predicament because I say, I'm trusting God, I'm obeying God, I'm praying for these blessings, but my blessing often evades me. And somehow my blessing got mis mistransported to the guy around the corner. The guy who's got 50 women inside his house every other day. The guy who's selling stuff around the corner. Somehow he's got my car. Somehow he's got my job. Somehow he's got my house. How is this happening? How is it that I think I'm doing the right thing and he's getting my blessing, whereas he's doing the wrong thing and I'm getting his curses? There must have been some type of mix-up here. Why is it that we think we're doing the things that will get blessings for us, but it doesn't ever seem to work out the way we believe it should or the way we've been told that it would? And I'll tell you the reason why is that we often misunderstand and misinterpret. Not what a blessing is. A blessing isn't that deep. A blessing is just means some good favor, something good, something that makes you happy. A blessing is not some deep word in Hebrew or anything like that. But we misinterpret it and we define the nature of a blessing based on our understanding, our desire, our paradigm, not based on what God has told us. One writer said this, People who are blessed may outwardly be much to be pitied. But from the higher and therefore truer standpoint, they are to be envied, congratulated, and imitated. In other words, if you are trusting in God to ultimately care for you, then you are a recipient of his blessing, even if it doesn't take the form of a house, a car, money, or a spouse. God may bless you that way. Probably God has blessed you in that way one time or another, and I pray that he does bless you in that way. But I want to warn you that God's blessings often don't take the form of things that are going to make your Instagram followers jealous of you. Maybe God knows, and maybe you know too, that the best way for him to bless you right now in this season is not to give you things that are going to turn people's heads, that are going to give you a large head, and that are going to puff up your ego and make you become more entrenched into the material world that constantly seeks to suck you in. Maybe God knows better than that. Maybe God knows that that's not the right blessing for you during this time. Because remember what I said earlier, this is not math, this is wisdom literature, so we cannot read this to say, if I do this, 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 I get this, this, this. God does not let you pick a toy out of the prize box when you had a good day. You've been conditioned to think that, I've been conditioned to think that, because from my earliest memories, when I had a good day, every hour I got to put a sticker on a chart. Come on, teachers, you know this. I used to work with kids too. You put a sticker on the chart, at the end of the day, they get to pick something from the dollar store, and they've earned their good prize. And guess what? I'm still stuck in that, and I'm 30 years old. But I still want my prize at the end of the day. So we have to recondition our mind to realize that's something I'm bringing to the text. That's not something God is saying here, that you get to pick a prize, that you get free tokens in the claw machine for check, making a checklist of trust that day. That's not what God is saying here. And the quicker we learn that, the quicker we'll be able to step back and recognize that God isn't withholding a darn thing from us. We've just said that God's supposed to give us stuff. He never said he was going to give us. So what does God do here? Does he say there are no blessings? No. The blessings are actually right here in this passage, and we're going to look at them in a second. There are absolutely blessings to look forward to, to be excited about, and to receive. And instead of God making some type of bargain or deal with us that says, do this, get this, he simply describes for us what the life of a blessed person looks like as they grow and trust in him and as their roots deepen. And tell me if this isn't more valuable than some sneakers or a new car. Read with me verse 8. This is the blessed person. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out toward a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes. And its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. How deep are your roots, Christian? 
How close are they to your life source? How do you respond on the hot days? Does your foliage remain green or does it start to wither up and dry? How much do you worry during seasons of drought? And when things aren't going well, do you continue to produce fruit or do you stop producing fruit altogether? This is the picture we have of those who trust in God versus those who don't. And if, you like, if you're like me, you say, I really want to be on the road that trusts in God. I really want to be that tree planted by the river. But it's not that simple. It's not that easy. It's not a switch you just turn on or off and say, I really, really trust in God today. That was easy. This is something like everything else. And I think we've, been, uh, we've misunderstood how trust works because... We somehow think certain things we work at to get good at. Like if you want to learn the Bible, well, there's, you don't just wake up knowing it. You've got to read the Bible more, right? If I want to have a good prayer life, I've got to pray more, right? So in the same way, trust isn't simple like that where it's something. Now, the Holy Spirit will give you faith. The Holy Spirit will do that. But any spiritual discipline you want to develop in your life takes work. It takes faith, and it takes effort on your part, and God will incline you, and God will meet you there, and God will pull you through, but you got to do something, and trust isn't unlike these other disciplines. Trusting God isn't easy, but trusting God is possible. I'm going to tell you a couple stories. Anyone here ever heard of Ram Das before, Baba Ram Das? My wife's not going to raise her hand this time. Usually, she's the only one who knows when I ask that question. That's what I said. Ram Das is uh, a spiritual guru. He's still alive. He's in his 90s. He's an Eastern spiritual teacher. And uh, that wasn't always his name. In fact, he had a very regular American name before, something like Richard Jones or something like that. He was a Harvard University professor in the 60s. And it was the 60s, and he lost his job because he experimented with some students using LSD. You know, it was the 60s. And they dropped acid together, and he would take notes and publish papers. and. Harvard said, yeah, you know, we're probably not going to, like, keep doing this anymore. Like, you can't just have your students take a bunch of acid and you make notes of it. So he had to leave Harvard. So he did the other thing you would do in the 60s, and he said, I'm going to go to India and become a spiritual guru. I'm going to become a teacher. So he went and he did that, and soon he became Baba Ram Das, who's a, who's a spiritual teacher. And while he was in India, he intentionally went to the very, very poor parts of India to be uh, immersed in the very impoverished communities that existed during that time there. And he retells the story often and says that he was a privileged guy coming from the United States. His parents had a lot of money. He was a Harvard PhD. And he remembers going through these poor streets of India with his nice clothes on, his expensive luggage, his pocket full of traveler's checks, and, you know, daddy is only a phone call away. And he's going through this, uh, these Indian villages, and he would see the, the state of the people there who, who were really very poor people, and he became grieved by that. And he'd become overwhelmed. He'd feel so sad because he'd go through and be like, oh, my gosh, the, the, their living conditions it, it must be so hard. They don't have enough to eat. They don't have this. They don't have that. And he noticed that they would kind of laugh when they saw him. But after he was there a couple weeks, something shifted. And he said when he would walk through these villages, these people began to know him, and they would actually not laugh anymore, but they would have the same expression towards him that he once had for them. They would feel grieved looking at him. They would feel sorry looking at him. This, this person who comes from such privilege thinking they're going to receive some enlightenment or some spiritual growth by just, you know, taking a little walk through a poor town without ever departing from any of his security, any of his material uh, security, any of those things. And so he uh, recognized that this was a weird hindrance, so he went on to make some changes, and he's got his own really crazy story if you ever want to read about uh, Ram Das. But something that may bring this closer to home is uh, from someone else who, who tells a story, and her name is Christina Cleveland. Christina Cleveland is a professor at Duke Divinity School. She is a social psychologist and a public theologian. And her job is actually very interesting because it is her entire career to know and teach about social injustice. So she reads books about the worst things that are going on in the world. She stays up to date with all the horrible things that are going on on this planet. And then she goes in the classroom and talks about it. 
teaches about it. Then the school pays for her to go spend some time in a very, very dangerous, very, very poor area, and she immerses herself in that culture, then comes home and does a podcast about it, writes a blog about it, and she lives in this cycle, and she said, this becomes absolutely devastating after a while. I, I'm, I'm an ivory tower professor. I mean, she, she's got it all. She, she's an incredible scholar, very brilliant woman, and she is completely consumed some days with defeat and hopelessness because she looks at all the pain and all the suffering that's around her and she does not quite know how to make sense of it. And one of her friends uh, she met in Rwanda, she spent some time in Rwanda, and um, they wrote her a letter in uh, response to her troubled feelings and they said this, we pray for you. When you have so many material things, you can't really know what it means to truly turn to God for all that you need. The power to forgive, food to feed your children, healing from the trauma of genocide, stability in the midst of an unstable society, or hope to keep fighting HIV. In other words, they were telling her, her privilege, her, her wealth, her security, actually to them seemed like a detriment to her faith because the very people she was pitying weren't struggling with those things. Yes, they had real issues, but they didn't doubt the same way she doubted. They didn't face hopelessness the same way she faced hopelessness. And I heard her say this one time on a podcast. Christina said this. Dr. Cleveland said this. Those of us who seem most hopeless and most discouraged about the state of the world are the very ones who don't experience much of the suffering we're so upset about. Yet, ironically, we seem to be the very ones who struggle the most to trust in God. Let me say that again. Those of us who seem so concerned and upset about the suffering of the world happen to be the very ones who often aren't the ones dealing with that suffering, yet we seem to be the ones who doubt God the most, who struggle the most to have faith in God, and before I go any further, I want to caveat this real quick so none of you think I'm being insensitive. Before I say this next thing, I want to say, I know, I don't know all of you, but I know many of you statistically struggle a lot. I know many of you have experienced real abuse, real trauma, real prejudice, real brokenness, and I don't want to minimize that at all. So with what I'm going to say next, don't ever hear me say that your trauma is not that bad or your abuse wasn't that. No, no. If you've really faced those things, that is serious and that is bad. But I want to say this at the same time. Not a but, but I'm also going to say this at the same time. I think many of you would agree that although life for us may be very hard, and maybe this won't apply to everyone, but generally speaking, our lives as Western Americans, we experience a general sense of well-being that makes it difficult for us to trust God for every little thing throughout the day, to really depend on God. Because for me, for example, like I didn't have to wake up really early this morning hoping my kids would eat. I didn't have to pray and hope I'd get a drink of water today. I didn't have to stay up all night hoping my kids wouldn't get kidnapped to become children uh, soldiers. Well, is that a, can, can, I, can you all agree with me that? Is that true? Would you say that although life may be very hard for many of us, there is a general sense of well-being we may experience of, as Westerners that makes it difficult to really trust in God in a very deep, sustaining, day-to-day, hour-by-hour type of way. Would you all agree with that? So then the question is this. What do we do? If, if you hear from people who are saying in my illustrations that, you know, they feel bad for us because we have so much more than they do. They don't have as much trouble trusting in God because they don't have a choice to trust in God. I mean, that's just what they're going to do. What do we do? Is the right answer that we glorify poverty? Do we say we should all, it's sin to have money. We should all become poor and, and just be poor and then we'll trust in God more. No, that's not true because we know other, other places in the Bible that God's the giver of all good things. And if you have good things, that's a good thing, right? So that's not the answer. So what do we do? I'm going to give you two things today that I think will help you learn how to trust God more, help you deepen your roots more, and learn how to begin an experience in your life that makes you someone who regularly and habitually over and over chooses the path that trusts in God. And my two things are this and I'm done. You got to stay in his presence and stay with his people. 
Stay in His presence and stay with His people. First point is stay in His presence. Most of us would probably agree that we're always in God's presence. Most of us would probably say, yeah, God is everywhere. We're always in His presence. But rarely do we actually enter into that presence in a way where we really recognize and experience and taste the awesome reality of being in the never-ending, constant presence of God. And this has been something that Christians have wanted to pursue from the beginning of the faith, because the more time you spend intentionally recognizing the presence of God, the more you will begin to include Him in your life. If, if I really recognize that God is actually here, I'm going to bring him into this decision. I'm going to pray about this thing. I'm going to look to him for this thing. I'm going to depend on him for this thing. And the more involved he is in the minute details of my life, the deeper my roots will grow, the more I will be inclined to choose that path, that trust in him. And one of the things that Christians have done from all time is called practicing the presence of God. And one of the ways you practice the presence of God is through a practice called ceaseless prayer. Now, ceaseless prayer isn't what you think it is. It doesn't mean that you pray constantly 24-7 like a monk in a cave. That's not what we mean by ceaseless prayer. But ceaseless prayer is actually quite simple. It's the idea of regularly and often throughout your day praying very short yet intentional prayers that recenter you around God and recenter God around yourself because we want to regularly throughout the day, not just for 15 minutes in the morning, but actually reorient our entire day around the person of God and bring him into everything that is going on in our lives. And one of my favorite forms of ceaseless prayer is practiced in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, and the prayer is titled, Bless, O Lord. And the prayer itself is, Bless, O Lord. That's it. That's the entire prayer. And what you do is this. You take the prayer, bless, O Lord, and you say, I'm going to incorporate this small request of blessing into everything I do today, before a meeting, before a, uh, my lunch, during an argument, while driving, while taking a break, whatever I'm doing, I'm going to say, Lord, bless this, whatever I'm doing. It's not that deep, but if you actually do that with somewhat of an aware mind, you're going to notice that you're bringing God into things. You're inviting him into things. You're including him in, in things in the way that someone actually would if they really felt desperate for these things. But you're going to intentionally prostrate yourself as someone who's in desperation for God. And as you do this, not only will you find yourself trusting God more, you're actually going to find yourself asking God to bless things you shouldn't be doing in the first place. So it's going to work both ways for you. I'll give you one other prayer that's a form of practicing the presence of God, and it's called the Jesus Prayer. And maybe you know it here if you're at Epiphany Fellowship. It's been used before, perhaps. And the prayer goes like this. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This prayer is not something to just be recited to, you know, earn some favor or to summon. It's not some spell. It's not something that just gets a response from God, but it's actually meant to reorient yourself around God because you recognize who you are, a sinner, who Jesus is, the Son of God, and what he can do for you, and that's give you mercy, which is much needed. And if you position yourself in a place where you are a sinner in need of mercy and he's the Son of God, you're going to be recognizing that it is him who is giving you all that you need, and it is him who you need to be submitted to throughout your day. So these are some examples. There's a lot of different things you can do, but whatever it is that you need, I suggest that you try something different if your prayer life has become stale, if your spiritual journey isn't what it was once, because life changes, so we kind of kind of shift with life. I used to journal for an hour every night before bed, journal my prayers. I got kids now. It doesn't really work anymore, right? You know, that just doesn't work that way. So I got to try different things. I got to switch it up once in a while, right? So if that's you, don't throw away everything you're doing, but I suggest try something like this and see if it doesn't help you a little bit. See if practicing the presence of God doesn't make God more real to you and your trust in him more authentic. Because as you do this, as you enter into this practice, you will also enter into what's called a cycle of transformation. What do I mean by that? I mean this. You may not necessarily feel like you trust in God today or tomorrow. On Monday, yeah, you really might not feel like it tomorrow that you trust in God. You have any hope, any faith sometimes. 
What you do is not this. Do not say, man, this is a dark season. I got to wait for God to come back in the picture till I feel right again. No, you have to say, regardless of how I feel, I'm going to intentionally take step towards trusting in God. And if that means I'm going to ask him to bless this, if this means I'm going to recognize him for who he is, I'm going to intentionally submit myself, pray these prayers, and say, I'm going to live as someone who trusts in God, even if I don't really feel like I trust in God right now. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to find yourself trusting in God more. And as you trust in God more, you're going to be more inclined to pray these prayers and take these steps. And you're going to find yourself trusting in God more and more. And as this cycle continues, the very people who know you best, the people who watch your life the closest, will recognize that you are changing. That you are changing from the very core of your being. Because guess what? The person who used to disappear when life got hard isn't disappearing as quick anymore. Because your roots are deeper. You, you don't become not a Christian when the bills don't get paid. All of a sudden, you sit there and say, no, God's got me under control. You, you don't disappear from the community when, when she's back in your life again for the hundredth time. You don't vanish and everyone says, what happened to him? Where's he been all summer? That doesn't happen anymore because your roots are deeper. Your source is closer. So now when you're on the street and someone argues with you and gives you a few little off the top of their head arguments of why Christianity's fake or Christianity's false, your whole world doesn't fall apart. People around you are going to say, man, this guy used to be all over the place. He used to come and go with the wind. One bad thing would sweep the rug out from underneath him, but he's not like that anymore. She's not like that anymore. They're actually someone with some stability. They have some roots because guess what? The taller a tree is, the deeper its roots are. You may not be able to see those roots, but you see the tree and you see the fruit that's on that tree. So the deeper your roots are, the more you trust in God, the stronger and more stable and taller and more fruit-filled you will be. So that's stay in his presence. The second and last point, then I'm done, is stay with his people. Now, you all at Epiphany Fellowship. I come from Epiphany Fellowship at Camden originally and then Restoration Church. So uh, this next point is not something new to you because I learned it here. And that is that the Christian life is not a solo mission. The Christian life is not designed to be something that you do on your own. Because until you are challenged, encouraged, discipled and prayed for by other Christians, you're only going to grow so much. You're only going to become so mature. Your roots will only get so deep. If you want a relationship with God that is marked by trust and you want to look like a tree that is pictured in this passage, you cannot get around the fact that you need to do real time with God's people. In the early church, they used an image which I like a lot, and it was an image of a wagon wheel. If you can all picture a wagon wheel right now, I don't have the picture on the screen, unfortunately, but it's a circle, and has a circle in the center that's smaller, and it's got little spokes, and these spokes go towards the insides. And the early church used to say this. They used to say, the center of that wagon wheel is God, and we are all the spokes. And you notice something about that wagon wheel. As the spokes get closer to the center, they actually get closer to each other. And as they get closer to each other, they also get closer to center. That's a way of saying that the closer you are to God, the closer you will be with each other. And the closer you will be to each other, the closer you will be to God. You don't like that illustration? Here's another one. Yeah, I was just saying that. <laughs> Jesus and the Bible often, time and time again, use the illustration of the bride of Christ, right? And Jesus, in so many words, says that if you love me, you will love my bride. If you love me, you will love my wife. The church, you, God's people, Christian, you are the bride of Christ. So if you are sitting here saying, I love Jesus, but I just don't like church. I don't like the people. I don't want to be around them anymore. Then you don't like him that much. Because I'm going to tell you something. If you say, I want a relationship with you, Pastor AJ, I want to hang out with you, and I say, cool, and you come over to my house, and my wife's saying, you're like, why is she here? I don't really like her that much. You got kids, too? You still with her? I'm going to say, listen, man, we're not going to be that close. I'm not going to hate you and all that, but you can only be so close with me. You can only claim to love me so much if you're really saying you struggle with my wife. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. To say that. So Jesus is saying here, and God is saying here, that if you are not regularly entering into real, authentic, life-changing, accountable, vulnerable relationships with other people, then you're only going to grow so much. 
Your roots are only going to be so deep. And I'm not saying it's like it's easy. I'm an introvert. This is not easy for me. I don't want to naturally go and tell you about yourself. I don't want to naturally tell you about my issues. I don't want to wake up and pray with you. I mean, honestly, I'd rather just be by myself. So this is not something we do because you're wired that way. You don't get an out because you say, well, I'm not an extrovert. No, this is something that takes work. This is something that takes effort. And this is something that takes risk. There's very few rewards in life that don't take some type of risk. And this is one risk you're going to have to just take sometimes. Don't be, you know, use wisdom, obviously, but you have to enter into a relationship with God's people. And you're at a church that really, really gets that. So I don't have to say any more about that because you're in a church that knows that the community is so indispensable. And so I don't need to give you an ad for life groups. I mean, I joked with Pastor, uh, Pastor Kurt earlier that, you know, his 20-minute announcement should have given you a clear picture of all the different opportunities you have to be with God's people, whether it's life groups or serving here or working at a camp here or whatever you're doing. There is an endless supply of things you can do to fast-track your way to easily enter into real relationships with other people. So take advantage of those. And if you stay in God's presence and you stay with God's people, you will begin to look more and more like the tree described here. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out toward a stream. It doesn't fear when the heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. So throughout your day and with one another, choose the path that trusts in God. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day. We thank you, God, that you are a God who doesn't leave us guessing, but you speak to us. You give us a clear understanding of what it is you're like and what it is you require from us. And we're thankful, God, that you give us the power, you give us the wisdom, you give us the ability to authentically follow you and trust in you, God. I pray for anyone here today, God, who, who really does have material needs. We don't ever want to make light of the fact that people really do need things, and you're God who gives us things. So those in this house today, in your house today, who do need that car, who do need that job, who do need that check, I pray that you would provide that, God. I pray that you would not withhold from your people the things they need to survive and live a life that is, that, that they have all that they need. But at the same time, I pray even more that we would all be a people who have roots that are so deep, so entrenched in our life source that even when these things don't come, we're not knocked over by the wind. We don't disappear. We don't fall apart. But that we are strengthened by the power of your spirit. We are strengthened by the work of Christ. And we are strengthened by your sustaining hand, God. So I ask that anyone who doesn't hear, who's here who doesn't know you would know you today, that they would seek the opportunity to name Jesus as Lord today. They would speak to someone here who can guide them in understanding what that means. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.